but as we wrap up this series, we see here John really winding down, and he gives us this summary of all that we've really seen over the last, for us, 14 weeks. Uh, for him, um, five chapters, although, remember, the chapters did not exist when he wrote this. Uh, but this letter... Um, has really served to remind the people that he's writing to of all the wonderful things that they know of their relationship with the Lord, all the things that is true about them. And in these last nine verses, John will give us seven we-know statements. Perhaps the way you've approached 1 John before, maybe not, not for all, but perhaps for you, uh, the way that you've approached it was to view much of what John has written as conditional statements, things that uh, kind of maybe spur a little bit of fear in you. You come to these things and you think to yourself, man, for me to be accepted by God, I must do these things. I must keep myself from sinning. Uh, to come to God, I must pray a certain way. I must desire to be in Christ. Maybe one day I'll be worthy enough for eternal life. I think a lot of the way that First John has been um, preached and written about often kind of views these things in that manner. And I think as we look at the conclusion here, we'll see that that's not the angle that John is speaking from. We've looked at some of John's reasons for writing. And as we come to today's passage, we're going to see perhaps the main reason that he has written. But I think it's helpful for us to see what he has not what has not been at the heart of his reason for writing. He did not write to dangle a carrot out in front of his audience to say, if you work really hard, you'll get here. He's written these diagnostic tests not to produce fear. He's written them to both identify the harmful false teaching of uh, men like Serenthus and, and the followers of him, and also to show believers what is true about them in Christ. And so today we will unpack three thoughts from the text, what we believe, what we pray for, and what we know. And so let's read 1 John 5:13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there... Sorry, there's a period there. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that we have been receiving from this epistle written so long ago. Thank you that it still speaks to us today. 
We thank you that your word speaks a better word, and that word is Christ. Father, help us to hear what you have to say. Help us to receive it this morning. Father, we do lift up the golems. We lift up Diana and her family as they grieve the loss of her mother. Father, I just ask that your spirit would be close and uh, a comfort to them as they grieve the loss of their mother. And we thank you, uh, Father, that she knew you and that she's with you. That provides a great comfort. Lord, we just ask that uh, she would feel your love today. We love you. We thank you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. What we believe. So we won't spend a long time here on what we believe. Uh, And really, this is just verse 13 of this passage that we're going to spend some brief time on. Uh, But I do want to draw out here how this verse really frames what's to come. This is the framework. John has, in a real sense, been pointing to this verse throughout his letter. So this is what I spoke of earlier when I mentioned this is perhaps the main reason for writing. And so this is kind of like the tip of the iceberg where everything else that has come before is the foundation. It's the below the surface portion. Have you ever seen pictures of an iceberg? Um, You see like the tip of it. And then below the surface, there's this massive structure of ice. That's what John has been laying for us so far, that foundation. And so this verse kind of serves as the tip of the iceberg. And it's really uh, showing us our new life in Christ. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's kind of break this down a little bit here. What are the things that he has written of? He's pointing back to all the things that he's written in this letter. Throughout, he has shown ample evidence of the belief of these um, congregants uh, that he is writing to. He's showing their belief in the Son of God, who he is and what he accomplished for their salvation. He wrote of the difference between darkness and light and those who are in darkness and light. He wrote of the fellowship that we have and the love that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He wrote of the nature of God, that God is love. It's his very nature. He has written to show that we can know God and that we abide in God and that if that is true, God abides in us as well. We have light, we have truth, and we have love in us as believers. We have all these things that John has written of and more. And he wants you to know all of these things. Throughout the following verses in this last passage, we're going to see words that all relate back to verse 13, particularly to the word belief. And that's why I say it frames what's to come. Confidence, knowing, understanding, truth, all of these things are related. And these words all have to do with our believing in Christ. Certainly activity is part of it. But the activity that John has pointed to throughout the letter and will continue to point to throughout these last few verses flows from our belief in Christ, not the other way around. So John is not writing that we may work towards confidence. He has written because of all this is true already for the believers. So the confidence that he will speak of in the next verse flows from the belief that we have in God. The knowledge that we have, he keeps saying that you may know, flows from faith in Christ. Now it is possible to believe and to experience doubt. 
We've been discussing in my grace group the last few weeks about an old concept. Um, Perhaps you've heard it. The truth needs to drop from my head to my heart. Um, And there's lots of different ways people say this. I've heard it said, you know, the longest distance is between the head and the heart. You know, various ways to say that. But what we are seeing in 1 John seems to actually be the opposite of that. He's saying that you need to know what is already true of you as your new life in Christ. He wants the mind to catch up with the new heart that you've been given. He wants the mind to catch up with the newer part of you. You've been given the new nature. You've been given this new life of Christ. And so he wants the mind to catch up to that. And I believe that this is in line with Romans 12, too, that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as you are transformed by the gospel, your mind is being transformed as well. The heart is instantly changed at justification. And, of course, I'm not speaking of the physical heart. Um, That would be wonderful if all of a sudden, when we were born again, all of us got a brand new fully healthy heart. But what we are given is new life. We are given, uh, we are made into a new creation. And the Bible just uses the word heart as the seed of who we are. You are regenerated, regened. As you behold what Christ has done, the Holy Spirit is changing and transforming and renewing your mind to agree with God, not to the old patterns of the sinful flesh. So John says that you may know that you have eternal life. You need to know that you have eternal life. This life is in you. That's what we looked at last week. Jesus is this eternal life, and by the Holy Spirit, this life is in you, the believer. And so John wants our minds to know that this is true. John wants us to know that the believer can be assured of eternal life. You don't need to doubt, but when you do, cast yourself and those doubts on Jesus. Because your confidence is not really in yourself. And that's what John wants us to see, that our confidence is actually outside of ourselves. Our confidence is not in our ability to obey. Your confidence is not in your ability to love. Your confidence is in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And John has been testifying this throughout his letter. From the very beginning of his letter, from verse 1, let's read that, the first three verses here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Your confidence is in the word of life, Jesus. Your confidence is in he who is the eternal life. He is the one who we have testified of, and it's he who we proclaim to you. This is the life that you have. And then we also have some amazing promises from Jesus that tie into this. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus speaking, I give them eternal life. So he gives us himself, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
take Jesus at his word. No one else is worth believing. You can know that you have life now and life to come. What, we, what are we believing about Jesus? We are believing the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, died for my sin and was raised again. And now you stand forgiven and you have this life within. You have received him. And so this is what frames the rest. This belief produces what we know and the confidence we have. So let's look at what we pray for, verses 14 through 17. And what we'll see here is that what we believe will shape what we pray for and how we pray for it. So let's read these verses. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So in verse 14, we see this word confidence. This confidence is produced or born of faith in Christ. It is a fruit of the gospel. The relationship that we have with God is that of sons and daughters. We are God's children. We saw last week in the baptism of Jesus that the Father delighted in the Son. When we were born again, we were baptized into Jesus' death and his resurrection, and thereby we are united with Christ. We are in him. So we are chosen of God, and we can truthfully say that God delights in us as his children. When we grasp this delight, it's like putting fertilizer, water, and sunlight on our confidence. It's just going to grow. And if I got the order of all that stuff with planting wrong, I'm I'm not good at that stuff. So I just know that those words somehow relate to plants growing. (laughs) Our confidence will grow as we grasp the delight that the Father has in us. Earthly parents who love their children, who delight in their children, often see a confidence in their children. Now, this is not always true, but I think it's uh, pretty common. Their children know that they can turn to their parents when needed. But when parents lead with fear and harshness, the, the children often feel a lack of confidence in being able to turn to their parents when they have need, when they have troubles. Like I said, that's not always the case. Every, every example, every analogy uh, sometimes falls short. But God the Father loves his children. And so his children can feel confidence. That we can have confidence as his kids that we can come to him. So as we behold Christ, as our faith is directed toward him, we are filled with the love of God by the Spirit, and we do find this confidence. John continues that, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So again, this relates to what we know. We know that if we ask according to his will, God hears us, and we have the requests that we ask. To ask God according to his will does not mean that before Christians can pray effectively, they need to somehow discover God's secret plans For the future. Now, this is sometimes called God's hidden will or the will of decree, His sovereign will for how things will occur on this earth. 
This is what God has planned, not just for your life, but for all things. So what is the will of God that John is referencing? Well, John is not telling us that we have to figure out God's sovereign plans before we pray. God has ordered his creation and that all of his sovereign will will not be revealed to us. He decrees the things that are and they become. They happen. And his plans will not be thwarted. In all of this, God uses his people to accomplish his will. He has ordained prayer as the means to bring about the ends that he has also decreed. And while we don't know what God has ordained, we do know that he uses our prayers to bring about his good and wise purposes. And that's really an amazing thing if you consider that the God of the universe who could do and does anything he wants has ordained it so that your prayers are part of his ordained plan. And so you can really have confidence when you pray. We also see, considering what we looked at in Romans 12 too, that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. At its most basic principle, God's will is that you and I would believe in the Son of God for the forgiveness of our sins. In 1 John, we see that it is the will of God that we would believe in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world, and that we would obey in loving our brothers and our sisters. His revealed will, what he shows us through the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit, is that we would believe, that we would be sanctified, that we would walk in the works that he's prepared for us beforehand, to love one another, to serve one another. My theological framework for prayer is pretty simple. And uh, I preached a message on this just recently uh, entitled Breathe. So if you want to kind of get a more clear picture of it, just reference that message. But I believe prayer is a natural response to the gospel. I believe it's how we respond to the amazing grace that we've received. I believe that as we receive the love of God in Christ, our hearts yearn to respond in some way. And prayer is one avenue that we respond. It's a natural overflow of what's happening inside. It is communication with my Heavenly Father. This passage as I've been mentioning often, has a lot to do with what we believe and what we know. And as we know and continue to get to know God as Father, we will feel more freedom. We will feel more liberty to come to him as Father, to speak to him. Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. He delighted to pray. He delighted to speak to his Father. Because we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is making this our delight as well. And so now we delight to do the will of the Father. We delight to speak to the Father. And we're growing in that. We know that as we pray out of faith, as we pray out of relationship, as we pray out of what we know, that God will hear us. If I was to ask you this morning, do you desire God's will? I don't think most of you would say, no, I don't. I don't really desire God's will. I think, I think most people desire, most believers know, know and desire God's will. We want God's will in our lives. We won't always know what that will looks like. Sometimes we only get one step at a time. But we, we know that we desire his will. He will answer sometimes yes. Sometimes no, 
sometimes hold on. How many of you have had kids come up to you, tug on your shirt and say, Daddy, I want this? And you say, hold on. Not yet. Maybe the most common instance of that in my home is, I want dessert. Well, you have to have dinner first. You know, yeah, we, have, we have to eat the vegetables before we can get to the dessert. And I know because I'm trying to get to dessert too. <laughs> we need to know that not everything we pray for will happen. But as our desires are more coming into align with his will, we more and more will pray according to that. So my prayer is not to force God's hand. It's to talk to him. And it's through that that I come to know his will. And my, my desires come more in alignment to his will, more and more. George Mueller oversaw the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. And he is remembered as a man of prayer. He cared for over 10,000 orphans during his life. And he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. The Father is willing. The Father desires that you come to him. So pray. I believe one way we might see what John is saying here is to actually see that the reason we can have confidence because of Jesus is that it is God's will for us to pray. And so in praying, we are coming according to his will. It is his will for us to come to him. He has ordained it to be so. The Father wants you to come. He wants you to sit on his lap, and he wants you to talk to him. Yesterday, driving through the car, or driving in the car, we were driving through town. I was um, forgetting that I needed to get gas, so I had to turn around and come back around. So there was a little bit of extra time as we were driving, me and Olive. And she was just talking to me. Ironically, I just read about a guy who ran an orphanage. She was telling me her great plans for one day opening an orphanage. And uh, we were just talking, and it struck me that she felt like she could just share what was on her heart. And if you know Olive, she can be a chatterbox, and it's a good thing. But I desire that. I desire to have conversations with my daughter. The Father desires for you to talk to him. The Father desires to hear from you. And so talk to him. And it can be as simple as talking to him as a father, like he is your dad. Verses 16 and 17 are a little bit difficult. Let's read those verses. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So connecting the threads of what we've just seen on prayer, I think that God has ordained it to be that we can pray for our brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, and God will respond. Let's unpack this. I believe the death that John has in sight when he says about these sins that are either not leading to death or leading to death is spiritual death. It is final spiritual death. I also believe that he has two different people in sight. It is a believer, a brother who is committing a sin not leading to death, and an unbeliever committing the sin leading to death. Believers can and do sin. 
We have this flesh that remains with us. And we're told in Scripture that the, the flesh and the spirit war. The flesh desires what it desires. It's fallen condition. It's fallen state desires certain things. And the spirit wars against it. But our salvation and spiritual death is not at stake because believers have Christ as their atonement and advocate. And they believe in him for eternal life. John would have his readers pray for such a brother or sister. And God has willed for you to pray. And it is his will, it is his will to restore, to give life. And it may not happen immediately, but God will restore life to such a brother or sister. We need to keep in mind the context of this letter as we read through this passage. There are many who have left the church that John is writing to. They have rejected Jesus as the Christ. They have rejected Jesus as the Son of God. They have denied their sin. They have denied their need of salvation. They did not believe the gospel. They flatly rejected it. And so when John is speaking of the one that commits the sin leading to death... Uh, This is who he is writing about. John has clearly identified them, not just as erring, but that they were never of us. They were not of us. They were never born again. D. Edmund, and I'm going to butcher the last name, but this is the only way I know how to pronounce it, Abair, says this. These false teachers manifested the spirit of Antichrist, separated themselves from the true church, and perverted or rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ in deliberately rejecting the incarnate Son of God in whom eternal life is available. They committed themselves to a spiritual attitude and course of action that could only be characterized as sin unto death. So this is the person that John writes of here as committing the sin that leads to death. It is the ultimate rejection of Christ and his saving grace. We do not know the trajectory of a person's life. John is not commanding us not to pray for people who seemingly are on this path. We can pray for unbelievers. We can pray for the tough cases. He is simply stating that it's not guaranteed that they will ever believe. And ultimately, the one that dies in their unbelief will not be given life. Now, this is heavy, but we can have hope in what we've already seen, what we've read here. And that's for the one that we've seen evidence of the life of God in them that have strayed. They may for a time continue to stray, but as we pray for them, God will restore life. And that's good news. We believe in Christ. We have been given confidence in God that he hears us. And it is his will for us to pray. Charles Spurgeon said this, Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with man. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. We can all pray. And let us see prayer as a gift. This is the chief weapon of our warfare. It is a good thing. It's not our last resort. It's not the last thing we turn to when we think of someone. 
Let it be our chief resort. So we've seen what we believe. We've seen what we pray for. Let's look at what we know. We come to the end, the last four verses here. John will rapid fire some things for us that we know. Verses 18 through 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So the title for this series has been The Gospel Transformed Life. Here we see it in full view. John is not writing to tell us to go and be transformed or else. He is saying the gospel has transformed and is continuing to transform your lives already. This is the life that we have. It is a transformed life. And it's a life continually being transformed by the power of the gospel. In verse 18, John makes three powerful statements about our relationship to sin. He's showing us that the victory uh, that we have in Jesus is over sin. He begins, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So we know again that this knowledge is in relationship to belief. It's produced by faith. Our mind is being transformed. The way we think is being changed and renewed. We know that we have been born of God and we do not keep on sinning. That is to say that sin is no longer the pattern of our lives. Our relationship to sin has changed. We were formerly ruled by our sinful nature. We were all born in sin. And we call this total depravity. That is that all of humanity has been corrupted by the fall. We've been corrupted by sin. Jesus, however, transforms this relationship. I'm going to read a lengthier passage of scripture here. Um, I read a portion of this last week because it refers to um, our being baptized into Christ's death. But I want to read the surrounding verses of that. So Romans 6, 1 through 12. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So whereas we were once dominated by sin and the sinful nature, we have a new nature. The old self was crucified and is no longer who you are. Yes, at times the believer will sin because of the flesh that remains with us. But that is no longer what defines you. It's not who you are. It's not your pattern of life. It's not what is directing your life. 
I know there will always be the but what about this question. Believers will sin and may for a season fall into grievous sin. But the believer can neither totally nor finally fall away from the grace that we have been brought into. The believer will persevere to the end and be eternally saved by the grace of God. Why? Because of what John says next. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So in this, we have the next two amazing statements about victory over sin. The reason the believer will persevere is because Jesus is preserving the believer. And stronger than that, John says that Jesus is protecting we do not keep ourselves. Jesus keeps us. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. A familiar passage we often read uh, as a benediction here, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then finally, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus, by his work on the cross, obtained my eternal salvation. And now through his intercessory work in heaven, he maintains it. John says that the evil one does not touch the believer. This word touch has the idea of grabbing hold of something with the intent to harm. Our enemy, Satan, desires to have you. He will harass. He will fire his darts. But he cannot get his arms around the believer. We read this earlier, but it's worth reading again. John 28 and 29 of uh, chapter 10. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Satan cannot get his arms around the two arm protective hold of God, the son and God, the father. How do we have victory over sin? Because of Jesus, he is protecting you. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John wants to know, wants us to know that we are from God. We have been born of God. Those who are not believers are in the clutches of the evil one. They are under his power. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This means the believer, though changed and transformed, lives in a fallen world. We see that all around us. We see that all the time. But we do have hope because just as John has stated before, the light is already pushing back the darkness. Jesus will return. He will renew this world. He will transform this world and he will make all sad things come untrue. Believer, your hope and your confidence is in Christ, not in this world. This is why I say that ultimately politics cannot be our hope. Because politics is a way of shaping a fallen world. There is merit to good government, and I want good leaders. Don't get me wrong. But even good leaders cannot be our hope. 
We don't need to despair over the fallen state of the world. Yes, we will mourn and grieve over sin. But we have hope in Christ. Because just as verse 20 shows us, he is true and he has come. And in him, we have life. Verse 20, 21, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John ends where he begin, where he began and what he has said all throughout, that Jesus, the Son of God, has come. He is true. He has given us understanding. He has given us eternal life. Again, all of this relates back to belief. Knowledge, understanding, and truth are all produced because of believing in the Son of God. It is Jesus who gives us understanding so that we may know who is true. God himself. And it's through Jesus Christ. Because of our union with Christ, we can know the truth of the gospel. It is only through Christ that we are able to know the truth. The world enslaved to the evil one and to sin are not able to grasp truth. The reason we're always sitting there wondering why don't they get it? It's because their minds are darkened. And apparently I have to speak louder because the rain is making a lot of racket. The world is enslaved to sin and they can't possibly know the truth until the grace of God breaks through their sinful hearts. And so do not be surprised that their minds are wrapped up in lies. You have understanding because the truth, who God is, is inside you through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. John ends this letter now in a way that on the surface does feel a little bit startling in the sense that he hasn't been talking about idols. And all of a sudden he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Mic drop. <laughs> he didn't, he, the mic drop's not in this translation. What are the idols that he means here? An idol is not merely an image made of stone or wood that we worship. I don't think most people in this room have ever had a carved image of wood or stone. I I guess I don't know that for certain, but most of us have not. But we've all had idols in our lives. Some have described idols as anything, including good things, that become God things or ultimate in our life. It can also be described as something that is operating as an alternative righteousness or an alternative source of confidence. When we think about it that way, it seems to fit right into what John has been saying. Through Christ, we can obtain confidence in God. Our faith is in him. Idols are when we obtain a confidence in anything else. It's when our hope and our faith is directed towards something else, even if it's just in a practical sense. Maybe it's just kind of a default pattern of our lives that we fall into these patterns of looking to something else. So idolatry is looking elsewhere. It's looking somewhere else other than the finished work of Christ. I would say that it's when you're looking to something in hope of securing favor with God other than what Christ has done. So legalism is an idol. Looking to depend and depending upon your own strength is an idol. So how do we keep ourselves from idols? Well, if you were to look at how I prepared my message, I have essentially 
taken the scripture, I printed it out on a page, and I showed this to Mike earlier this week. I drew lines back all the way back to verse 13, and there's just a ton of lines like going back and forth, back and forth. It kind of looks like the scene in TV shows and movies where you've got that crazy guy in the garage with a cork board up, and he's got the red string all tied back and forth, and he's like, see, it all connects. It's that guy. That was me this week as I, as I prepared for this message. How do we keep ourselves from idols? Well, it goes back to verse 13. It's believing in the true Son of God. Through his death and resurrection, you have been born of God, and only through that can you have the forgiveness of sins. It's not our abilities. It's not our understanding. And it's not looking to special knowledge. I mean, when you look at who the people that followed Serinthus were and what they believed, essentially they were walking around going, I have this special knowledge, and you know, if you just follow me, I'll, I'll give you this special knowledge. That's an idol. Looking to the good news of Jesus squashes idols. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, the gospel transforms. Jesus has taken us who are once sinners under the power and influence of the enemy. And he has changed us. He has taken us from the kingdom of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of light. We have been born of God. We have eternal life. We have the Son. We have love. I believe this morning that I'm looking at a room of people who have had the gospel transform their lives. The gospel creates a new culture, a gospel culture, a culture of love for God and love for one another. What Jesse described uh, earlier this morning, the way that we serve one another, the, the way that we look and treat each other people is evidence of this gospel-transformed life. And so in this new transformed life, idols don't stand a chance. They will be squashed if we live in that, if we live in the life that we've been given It's not that we're strong enough. We're not. We're weak. And we know that the only power to do what we need to do is the gospel. So let's live in that. Let's encourage one another in the gospel. That we've been forgiven. That we've seen transformation in each other's lives. Let's encourage one another in that. Let's serve one another. And let's continue to see this flourish in our body. This is what God is creating. Gospel-transformed lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your life that you have poured so lavishly into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love that you have shown to us through Jesus Christ unconditionally. We didn't have to clean ourselves up first to come to you. We don't have to get our act together in order to approach you. You bid us to come and to give you our mess. Father, I just thank you that this work of your gospel power has already uh, been occurring in the lives of so many here at Grace Life and around the world. And I just ask that it would continue to flourish, that your Holy Spirit would uh, just continue to shape us and to mold us 
into the image of your dear son. Lord, we desire this. We desire your will. We desire that this would take place in our lives, that you, we, we would be continually shaped by you, that our desires would come into alignment with your desires. Lord, I thank you that we come to you in weakness, not in strength. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.